Go ahead and flip to John 20. Uh, John 20, we'll look at 1 through 31. Like I said, next week, Jordan is going to um, give us a, a sermon from Jeremiah, and then we're going to close out the week after that, John 21. And then I anticipate I'm toying with a series, a short series, called Reconstructing Emotions. And it's an area of, I think, opportunity. There's a lot of work to be done in that area. Um, Especially in, in the reform camp, we tend to be very cerebral and we need to assess our emotions because God made us a whole person. And uh, so there's a lot tied to that. It's kind of an area I'm venturing out in. So um, I'll be <laughs> studying pretty hard and preaching to myself because it's, it's certainly an area for us to consider. So Lord willing, that'll be the, the, next, the next few weeks. All right, John 20, I'm going to pray and then we'll just work through the text together and study the vindicated Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that you, we thank you that the tomb is empty and that Christ sits enthroned in heaven. We are eternally grateful that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would, would grant us the peace and joy of Christ that we so desperately need so that we may be about the business of your new creation. And we ask this in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. John 20, let's look at verse 1, and we'll work our way through it. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, anytime you read narratives, especially uh, Old Testament narratives or any narrative, uh, like the book of Acts, for example, the New Testament, you want to pay attention to words that are repeated. Uh, this is uh, the Jewish way of writing, especially like apocalyptic literature is very flamboyant, very um, word picture-y, uh, beasts coming out of the sea, you know, those types of things, not literal beasts. Um, but, but whenever the narratives are written, they're written in such a way for you to grab your attention. So if you see something that's repeated, you should pay attention. And one of the things you're going to see repeated is already from the first sentence, is the first day of the week. The first day of the week. That is the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath being um, Friday night to Saturday night, sundown, sundown, and then the first day being Sunday. Um, keep in mind, because we'll talk about this, the order of days in terms of God's creation and then how it's basically flipped around with Jesus being risen on the first day of the week. And we'll look at that in a minute. So it was still dark. That's John's way of talking. He loves to talk about darkness and light, and so he's reminding us it's still dark. And the stone is already taken away. This stone would have been in a sort of like a, a little um, divot, if you will, and it would have been something that would have taken a whole host of people to roll a fairly large stone in the tomb. So she, this is Mary Magdalene, she ran, notice the running, and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, presumably John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. They have been in control of this whole, they being the relig religious leaders, the Romans, they're in control of this whole process. Clearly, the, to the tomb is rolled open. They're at it again. They're doing something here. Normal procedure was to let a body decompose, and then they would take the bones and put them in ossuaries. 
but this is like only a couple days after the crucifixion. It can't be the case already. Something's going on. So they don't know where he's at. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. There's our running phrase again. Running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I love this probably John who he's talking about himself. He's writing about himself. Cute little note, I beat the old man Peter. John would have been very young, probably in his early teens, mid-teens. He was the youngest of the disciples. So he is a whippersnapper who can outrun old man Peter. (laughs) So he gets there first and and stooping and looking in, verse 5, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. A most conspicuous situation. The, the linen's there, the body's not, but he doesn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. Peter, the leader, goes into the tomb. Mary didn't go into the tomb. She looked and then ran to get to the disciples. Peter goes into the tomb first. Mary Magdalene being the first apostle, uh, she, the witness to the resurrection, she goes and tells the good news, which is a flipping upside down of conventional uh, procedure. Women weren't to be trusted in testimony. Women were considered lower. And yet Mary's the one who first sees and she's the first to go and announce the good news unwittingly because she doesn't know what the deal is, but she announces it. So Simon Peter came. He entered into the tomb. He would have stooped down in and and walked right into the tomb. There probably would have been a slab of, of rock cut out and he sees the linens as well. They see them lying there. And notice verse 7, we have this weird detail. And the face cloth, which had been ro- been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Why in the world does John tell us that? Well, I think, and this is somewhat conjecture, because you know, I, don't, I don't know if we really, really know, but um, the only time we're talking about linens was John 11 with Lazarus. And I think John intends us to remember that. Lazarus came out and they had to untie him. He was, he was dead and was raised. But Jesus is raised in a completely different manner. He doesn't need the linens taken off. In fact, they're just laying there. So I think that's John's point, that this is a different thing altogether. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. Peter goes in, but John believes. John isn't fully, probably consciously aware of the ramifications of everything, but he sees that that's, that's a dead man who's alive, he believes. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. They go back to their homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so probably what happened is Peter and John went out, maybe they saw her, and she's crying. She, she went there anyway to mourn. That's why she would have gone to the tomb to mourn um, Jesus. Probably they left and said, okay, well, you know, you, you do what you got to do. They went back to their homes. But Mary's there, Mary Magdalene, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. What did she see? She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Angels sit, the cherubim sit, on the Ark of the Covenant, one on each side. 
So that's, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening here. Visual imagery, Hebrews goes on a whole, you know, rant on this stuff in a good way. So she stoops in and notice that she wept. Remember John eleven thirty five, 35, uh, Jesus wept. We have a flip here. Now she's the one weeping for her Lord. And they said to her, the women, the, the uh, angels speak to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, by the way, I didn't know this until we were doing, Mary, you might remember this, um, a funeral in Michigan. And I didn't know the extent of it, but there are laws in place where the funeral director has to stay um, there until the final piece of the grave is put in the huge usually it's a metal uh, the the uh, caskets lowered and then they seal it on the you know in the ground and then they bury it again and I didn't realize this but there is a law where the the funeral director has to be there for the whole thing um, you learn a lot about that stuff when we're just kind of waiting and so they have to legally be there for fear that perhaps somebody who was buried with you know jewelry or something they might try to take it um, so sort of that idea, I think potentially we have the same thing going on with Mary. Where's the body? Like we're in charge of the body. That's, he's our family. He's our friend. You know, what, what are we doing here? So verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, he is the gardener, the new Adam, right, of the new creation. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, keep in mind, Jesus' sheep hear his voice. Because she doesn't know who he is at the moment. He initiates it and says her name, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew probably Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or master. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Stop grasping me. In other words, you, this, the relationship you have known isn't going to be the same anymore. Don't cling to me. He's saying, you, don't, don't grasp me like that. Don't hang on. Things are different. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Thomas is going to make the same confession. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. She's announcing the gospel. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Remember his prayer, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They needed the, uh, the evidence too, as we'll see in a minute. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, apostello is the word, so I also send you. Pempo is another word. There's a difference. The authority belongs to Jesus Christ. None of us are sent on our own authority. We are sent into the world on his authority, based on his covenantal authority. 
So we're sent into the world as Jesus is sent in the world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember when Adam was, the breath of life was breathed into Adam? New creation again. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I'll explain that in a minute. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe the sin of unbelief. It's not doubting Thomas, by the way. It's unbelieving Thomas. We've, the, the Greek word, just like in English sometimes, but in Greek, pistis is the Greek word for faith. And if you put ah in front of it, apistis, it means the opposite. It's not believing. It's not faith. He's not doubting Thomas. He's unbelieving Thomas yet. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Remember, this is a week later, eight days after eight days. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. I like the NASB translation. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet you believed. And yet believed, rather. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Narrative comments, right? But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The issue with Thomas was to set the tone for future generations of disciples. None of us saw the risen Lord at the tomb, but we are blessed when we believe. And it's written so that we would believe. All right. So here, here's, let's think about some things. <clears throat> the resurrection of Christ is the single greatest uncontested act of discontinuity the world has ever seen. Uncontested because man can't do it. He can't raise himself from the dead. It's discontinuous because it's not normal. It's not a normative pattern in creation. History is centered and contingent on the resurrection. Um, ancient mortals could only wish for such a doctrine. Even the Greeks had a fascination with the, the idea of it. The post-enlightenments of our day, they find resurrection doctrine to be grossly incredulous. It's unbelievable. How could you believe such a thing? In the resurrection, the arrogant hubris of modern skeptics is found to be silenced by fishermen from Galilee. Fishermen from Galilee who witnessed the Word, who was made flesh, who dwelled among them in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection glory. And all of this is because resurrection has indeed happened in history. And we are con compelled to conclude that all meaning for history is inextricably tied to it. Meaning and purpose, which is what our world wants but can't find, has to be found in resurrection, in history. And meaning, a thing is a thing because God says it's a thing. Right? 
there's so much confusion on a lot of this today, but meaning is something that's imputed to us. It's given to us. It is not something that men just get to sit around and concoct by his own whimsical devices. I'm intelligent, therefore I'm going to come up with 52 genders. That sort of thing. So as Rush Juni, he's pointed this out um, several times, but the process is this. Man first construes that nature is this realm that's apart from God, and then he deduces by his own logic, his fake logic, he asserts that man then is the final arbiter of truth. If, God, if we can get rid of God and divorce God from the earth, then we can decide what is truth. And that's why Canada can't get their pronouns straight, and America isn't that far behind. So what John, our writer, intends to communicate is that belief, belief and faith, is the great issue of history. It's the great issue of history. And this belief is centered on the surpassing actions of Christ in the gospel of the kingdom. It's all centered on that. Belief, knowledge, all of it that the world tries to claim apart from God, they can't claim. It belongs to Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom. So Jesus, he was put to death by political and religious blowhards, or rather, Jesus gave up his life because he has the authority to do so. And because he has the authority to give it up, he also has the authority to take it up. That's the logic. So this type of authority that's required to shape history and to establish the kingdom of God in this way is the type of authority that Christ possesses. It is his. He has it. And it's his alone. No one can claim that authority. No man, no woman, no child. All of us fall underneath the authority of Christ. <clears throat> and, and really that means we should see the resurrection of Jesus as the vindication of Jesus. The vindication of him. In other words, it's God in the resurrection shouting boldly and bringing justice to Jesus, who was wrongly accused and wrongly crucified. He's bringing justice to Jesus, and he's bringing justice through Jesus to the world. Now, <clears throat> the reason that we can speak like this is because God is, Van Til talks like this, God is the concrete reality, and Jesus is his mouthpiece. He, God is the foundation, Jesus is his mouthpiece. And it was the Son of God who became a man, and it was this son, second Adam whose perfect obedience in action that establishes the source of God's self-revelation. So God revealed himself in Jesus, and now it's fixed. It's there. All history is defined by it. Meaning is defined by it. Knowledge, purpose, the whole enchilada, that's all centered on Jesus. And let me say this plainly then to try and summarize. God has proven his sovereign dictation of history by entering history and flipping everything right side up. God himself has proven, he has proven to the world his sovereign dictation and predestination and order of all things in the world, and especially his order of history, by entering history and flipping it and turning it back right side up. And that's the resurrection that serves as the foundation of it all. And the reason, that I, the reason I see it as, and you should too, see it as the single greatest uncontested act of discontinuity 
of all time is because dead men do not come back to life in this way. It's not normal. Lazarus was raised, but he died again. Poor guy. See, human history from Adam all the way to today is a continuous story of man's rebellion and exasperation, and the end result is always death. It's always frustration. That, I mean, and you get a guy like Karl Marx who will step up and say, ah, we can, we can determine things through their materialistic process of things. And so now you have, you know, races who are far more superior. You know, Africa is full of blacks and it's, it's unproductive and therefore blacks are inferior, right? There's all these stupid philosophies that arise and it's all in the context of death and frustration, and that's all we're producing in America. That's the culture of death. It isn't just abortion. It's statism. It's the whole thing. And that is the continuity of history apart from God and his Christ. So death is all men have ever known. That's all men have When Adam and Eve were told, you will surely die, that became the standard. That was the promise. That's what men would always know. Lazarus, again, illustrates the point. Men are born and men die. Women born, women die. That is the process of history. That's the cycle until it's not. See, if the wages of sin and death is death, and it is, then the, rec- the, the resurrection is the great reclamation of all that sin has stolen. It's a reclaiming of all that sin has stolen It's the great defeat of all of sin's power and all of sin's disfigured fruit. That's what the resurrection does. And quite literally, resurrection undermines sin's most deadly consequence. That is death itself. Resurrection undermines death. But we have to remember, though, because sometimes we talk like this. I've done many funerals in my day, and I've heard some of the strangest things. Very strange doctrines come out during when we're mourning, when we're sad. Um, Things like, he's here with me right now. Well, no, that would be theologically incorrect. But, you know, you don't, uh, funeral etiquette is not to correct them in that moment, (laughs) by the way. Um, That would be rude. Um, But death, death, death has this weird sort of quasi- philosophy that we give to it. And we, we need to know that death is not the incarnation and revelation of some sort of rival God or an alien power. We have to stop attributing personhood to death. And here's what I mean. Death is not without meaning, nor is it without purpose. It is not a reckless, purposeless, nebulous God. Death is the curse of God against man. So even like the doctrine of hell, when we think about God's justice, we like to, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this doctrine. I think there's some faulty notions. Um, and I'm still wrestling with this in my own mind with the doctrine of hell. Well, it's the eternal absence of God. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's, I think it's the eternal frustration of the presence of God and not turning to him in faith and not being able to. But I don't know yet. So don't quote me. Okay, because that's an area of study that I need more work in. But I will say this. We do this with death all the time. Death is the curse of God against rebellious men. It is not the equal opposite of God. 
Death isn't walking around with his sickle with a hoodie. And Satan is not either. He is not the equal opposite of God. It's not yin and yang here, you know, good and evil. Like they're equal and they sort of, you know, tussle like the Star Wars and the Force. And like there's not this um, pattern of equality in history between God and Satan or death and God. Both answer to God. Both are on a sovereign leash. Death itself is the covenantal curse that's delved out to man because of his insurgency, because of his rebellion, because of his apostasy. And thus, resurrection, then, is the apprehension and the arrest of death. Death doesn't wander around aimlessly. It doesn't wander around aimlessly. Um, We do that all the time. Well, you know, the clock is ticking. My day is going to come. Right, but that's not because death is sitting around as a person with a clock or even arbitrarily going around doing something. Death is not a person. Death is the curse of God against man for man's sin. And there is a clock. There is a moment that you and I will find that's an appointment you won't be late to. (laughs) It's just going to happen. But it doesn't just happen randomly. God is sovereignly numbering your days. So death has a leash, and its owner is the sovereign triune God. Now, John, our writer, he's gone through great pains to explain to us this creational paradigm that he's working with. If you remember the beginning of the book, he said, in the beginning was the Word. And that was intentionally meant to set the tone for the the work. This is a second creation. In the beginning, Genesis, aha, uh, spirit breathing on, aha. This is all, he's being very quite obvious with us. This is the creational tone. The same word who spoke all of creation into existence, the same word who, as Proverbs 8 says, is the wisdom of God, this is the same word who became a man, who took on flesh. And listen, when Adam was made on the sixth day and God announced the creation of man, we need to pay attention to what John is saying because according to John's timeline, that's the same day that Pilate stood and said to the world, Behold the man. So this Logos, this word, was put to death by unjust cowards on the same day that Adam was sentenced to death by God. So like God at creation, Jesus, he's put in the tomb, he rests on the tomb in the belly of the earth on the seventh day, and John tells us that the first day of the new week is now the first day of the new creation. Just like Adam was condemned on the sixth day, Jesus was condemned. That's how much of an Adam he is. And the resurrection of Christ, that's the same light that bursts forth on the first day of creation. See, the the resurrection, to, to give you some metaphors, it's the sweet symphony of God that silences the polluted noise of fallen men. It's the aroma of glory that fills the earth and suppresses the stench of our sin. It's the light that breaks the teeth of darkness. It's creation, but it's recreation. It's creation all again. And just like that same spirit who hovered over the waters of of the first creation, now we have Jesus who breathes on his disciples the spirit wind of God. And the disciples then are welcomed into this new garden world. That's the official welcome party. That's the greeting team for this church. (laughs) Jesus greets them breathes on them. 
that welcome to the new world I'm making. I'm the gardener. I'm the second Adam. You have the same spirit that raised me from the dead is now in you. Congratulations. You are my children. So what is this world he's welcoming into? It's a world where they can know God and know him as their father. It's a prepared place that Jesus went to make so that they can be his children and no longer orphans. Where they can be empowered to reflect the glory of God completely and fully. Where they can be conscripted into the army of the Most High God, establishing the dominion of God in every single area of life. Jesus is Ezekiel. The Ezekiel who blew the breath spirit of God into the dead bones, making us all alive in him. And you don't think about it, and I don't typically think about this, but you have everything you need to reflect the glory of God in every single area of your life. I feel like Christians today, maybe you feel like this too, we sort of walk around and it's like we're still... That escapism's there. Like, I don't have what I need. I'm not equipped enough to be an obedient father or, you know, a, a husband, to be an obedient Christian, to be an obedient worker at my job. Maybe I'm lacking. I'm lacking in something. And a lot of that is our own insecurities, our own, you know, um, perhaps we, we are lacking in some ways emotionally. Whatever, healthy, maybe we're not healthy. Maybe we're physically ill. Whatever the issues are, but you have the Spirit of God breathed on you. You have what you need. So everything is now changed. Everything from that moment of the resurrection is now changed. They must not cling to Him. Everything is different. Relationships are changed. Purpose is now changed. They have this great task set before them for conquering the world for Christ. Their relationship to Him is not predicated on His proximity, but rather their service to him in the new creation as people of the kingdom. I've, you guys have said this, I know John and Mellon, and I, apparently you too now, Tess, when you've talked to people and you explain to them, well, why'd you come to Virginia? Well, yeah, there's a job opportunity, but I'm really excited about my, my community, my church, what we're doing. And that's not normal. It's not normal, and it shouldn't be. Because everything's different. Everything's changed. We're supposed to be a changed people who live in a changed world and called to make change. So you want to be close to Jesus, do you? You must obey Him. You want to love Him. You're called to do His will. And that's why He says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The disciples, and by, of course, consequence us, we are to be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. You are a just person seeking justice. You are declared to be a righteous person seeking righteousness. You have been established to the law so that you can establish the law. Resurrection is the vindication. You and I have been raised with Christ. You died with Him, you were buried with Him, and now you're raised with Him, and now you're seated with Him. And John sees all of that stuff running together. And, and that's the vindication and the justice of God given to Jesus. The man who served the man who healed, the man who preached and encouraged and rebuked and scolded and chastised, the man who empowered, the man, the man who, who brought all of these things to life, all of it is the justice of God, the righteous verdict of God given to Jesus in his resurrection. It's the Father's approval of the obedience of Jesus. It's the lifting up of this man who descended very low 
to wash feet. It's the exaltation, the resurrection. That's the great reversal of man's idolatrous verdict. Man said no to Jesus. This is a wicked man. He must die. He's a blasphemous man. We must put him on the cross. We must skip due process. We must kill this man. And the resurrection says, you were wrong. You were wrong. Your verdict was wrong. Talk about jury nullification. See, this isn't a power religion where the gods boss us humans around. The power religion of ancient Egypt and other false religions. It's a religion of dominion whose primary ethical formulation is composed of spirit-wrought regeneration in your life and God-glorifying obedience and service. Amen. See, we're to carry this forward in the world. And listen, here's the disposition. Our disposition is very simple. The tomb is empty, therefore all idols and all pretend kingdoms must be destroyed. Amen. That's the logic whether you like it or not. And what is the root of all of this idolatry and pretend kingdoms? It's unbelief. Unbelief is the basis for all idolatry and arrogance. That's the sin we're confronting. And, and we forgive that sin in others when we proclaim Christ and they are converted. When we're, their mess, we're the messengers, right? Christ is the active ingredient. And when men choose not to obey God, the God they know, they're declaring their proud stance of judicial supremacy, right? They want to be a law unto themselves. That's what we have. And because of the resurrection, guess what? This can no longer go unchallenged. See, resurrection is the process that God uses to bring restoration to the world. Wherever sin goes, resurrection goes. The new birth in your life, that's resurrection power. The restoration of man and his God-given institutions, the restoration of all of that, that's resurrection. Death, then resurrection. That's the pattern. Look, Think about your relationships. We have to die to self in order to live with Christ and one another. Your, your spurious views and erroneous views and philosophies, they must all die and be raised with Christ. Your views on economics, politics, education, your views on authority and submission, your views on parenting and marriage, all of it has to die with Christ and be raised with Christ. Otherwise, you're not going to think straight. And this is because there is a way that seems right to a man, but Proverbs says it ends in death. And we don't want what seems right to us. We don't want anything to do with that. We want to run from that. And we want to run away from leaning on our own understanding. And we want to run fast to the empty tomb. So run to wisdom. And since Christ is the wisdom that shames all the pretend wisdom of men, we must go to him. It's interesting that they ran to the tomb. You and I must run to him, run to him in his resurrection glory. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have sovereignly given us the, the most beautiful expression of your will, your purpose on the earth, and that is the raising of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank that you've vindicated him. We're thankful that you've vindicated us in him. We're thankful that we now have the justice and righteousness of God to move the wheels of history forward so your glory can be on display. And we ask that you would help us, not in just the big things, God, like the conversion of our heathen nation, but help us in the little things, in our relationships, how we speak to one another, 
how we raise our families, how we work at our jobs. God, would you give us that resurrection paradigm? May your spirit work in us. In Christ's name, amen.